Father, as we come to you tonight, we pray that you would be glorified in what we've learned. We pray, Lord, that you give us the mind in order to learn things. You know how our minds are to work. I pray, Lord, that as we learn truths about your word, that we would take them with grace. Because, Lord, you give them to us with much, much grace. And you want us to learn to give them back to others with grace. So I pray, Lord, that as what I share tonight is spoken and said, that people will take it with an amount of grace in which they receive it and learn to share it too in grace. And so I give you all glory and honor for what takes place in Yeshua's name. Amen. Um, Joy, would you be willing to read for us? Sure, all the way through. Yes, from beginning in Matthew 27, which it should be at the top of your handout. Chapter 27, verse 57, and then going all the way to the end of 28, the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Now when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had also become a disciple of Yeshua. This man went to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. Then Pilate ordered it to be given up. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And when he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Then he rolled a large stone up to the door of the tomb and went away. Now Miriam from Magdalene was there, and the other Miriam sitting opposite the tomb. Now on the next day, which is after the preparation, the ruling Kohanim and the Pharisees were gathered before Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember how that deceiver said, well, while he was still alive, after three days I am to be raised. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, so his disciples do not come and steal him away. They will tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard, Pilate said to them, go make it as secure as you know how to. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone along with the soldiers of the guard. Now after Shabbat, as it began to dawn on the first day of the week, Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam came to look at the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of Adonai descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And those keeping watch were shaken for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Yeshua who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly now and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to the Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. They quickly left the tomb, with fear yet with great joy, and ran to bring news to his disciples. And behold, Yeshua met them. Shalom, he said. They drew near, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Don't be afraid, Yeshua said to them. Go tell my brothers to head for the Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while he was going, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the ruling Kohanim all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of silver to the soldiers, saying, Tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this is heard by the governor, we will ease him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story was spread among the Judeans to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to the Galilee to the mountain Yeshua had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some wavered. And Yeshua came up to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you. 
So um, we've been studying, and, and last week I know I shared, I hope I didn't ruffle too many feathers last week. We shared some things from a, a different perspective, per se, and just just to briefly review and touch on some of those things and, and see what you guys maybe have learned as well. Because, um, you know, I know I sit up here to teach it, but I want to make sure that you're, you're learning something also. And so we talked about how Yeshua was tortured. And does anyone remember what scourging was? Flogging. Flogging or whipping in a public manner. And we talked about that his crown was made of thorns, but it was probably more styled like a wreath. And the reed in his hand was not necessarily like a, a big stick, like we sometimes talk about. But maybe like it was something very small about the size of it could have been just a small branch. And it was kind of done to, to mock Yeshua in a sense. Then we talked specifically about the crucifixion. And does anyone remember what I said about um, the word for cross? Used for wood? Used the same for wood. And so sometimes we, we say cross and we get the picture of the... We get a typical picture that looks maybe something like this. Okay? But maybe it was just a beam, a cross beam, in which it was put on a tree. And there were several scriptures that Yeshua was crucified on a tree. We see them throughout the New Testament and talked about them. And this is the same word that you have for the word fig tree or for the olive tree. And in Greek, it's the exact same word. So part of the point here is... Was Yeshua crucified on a cross or on a tree? And the answer is actually Jewish, both and. He was probably crucified on a crossbeam, and then that crossbeam was lifted up onto a tree, a tree that already existed. In a sense, you know, they weren't going to fashion a specially made cross to kill somebody. They usually just took what was there and available and, and got the job done. We talked about how um, Simon was compelled, someone who was compelled to take Yeshua's cross and it since brought into service. We talked about the application of that. That Yeshua does things when we work with Him. When we work with Yeshua, we learn to work together, we learn to be together. This was the case maybe with Simon. When they, when they were carrying the cross, they learned about each other. And that's how we sometimes learn how to grow with each other when we do things together. When we do things together. So then Yeshua is crucified, and we talked about how um, th at the time he was offered wine mixed with vinegar. Does anybody remember what I said about that? Wine, wine mixed with gall is what it says, or and, and and we suggested maybe that was some kind of pain reliever, some kind of way to help numb the pain in a sense. And it's sad that that's many reasons why people maybe drink. Or smoke marijuana because they want to numb the pain in their life. And this, and, and what did Yeshua do to, about that? The gall and the wine. He refused it. And it's a very big statement of who he was, knowing that everything he was going to face and suffer, he knew that God would see him through it, even if he took something or didn't take something. But he made the choice not to take something. So then we talked about the different statements that he makes on the tree. And I kind of tried to illuminate that many of the statements come from Scripture, at least half of them. And some of them are, are very profound in that way. We talked about how there's Psalm 22.1 and Psalm 30, um, 31 verse 5. 
And we talked specifically about where it says, see your son, how this was a reference to maybe the resurrection taken out of both 1 Kings and 2 Kings. That he's not really talking to his mother, per se. In fact, we don't see, only in John it mentions that his mother's at the cross. That's the only place we have that record. And that most of his friends aren't very close by. They're actually quite a far ways off. And and part of the reason was for that, we, we said that they were probably naked. That they, it was something that was shameful to behold. And that the women wouldn't have wanted to behold someone that was suffering that way. So we talked about how it's on the Mount of, of Olives. I mean, the Mount of Olives, yes. Golgotha was a place, the Mount of Olives. Do you remember why we talked about that? The elevation, that was one point. Yes, the sacrifice. What about the sacrifice? No, give it a shot. Come on, this is how we learn. A portion of the sacrifice had to be made within the town wall, and a portion of it had to be made outside the town wall? Yes, it had to be outside the camp. The sin offerings always were taken outside the camp and burned. And this is the same principle we found in both the sin offering and in the red heifer that they were actually sacrificed on the Mount of Olives. They weren't sacrificed in the temple proper area. And there was a reason for that, and we, and we read from Hebrews 13, that Messiah goes outside the camp willing to bear the shame. Willing to bear the shame. And that's kind of the picture that both John and the writer of Hebrews both mentioned, that it was outside the camp. And as we get into tonight's study, it even says that this is a garden tomb in the book of John. A garden tomb in which he's laid. So the first thing we read about Joseph of, of Ramatayim, if I'm saying that right, Ramatayim. Or Arimathea, as you know it. What do we know about Joseph? Who's this guy, Joseph? Okay, a high priest. Is that that's a quite Okay, we have he's rich. That's correct. Same word used for the rich young ruler and, and Zacchaeus. What else do we know about him? Well, let's look what Luke has to tell us about it. If someone would turn to Luke chapter 23. And I'm getting to the bottom of my notes, which I think is on page 2. <clears throat> Luke 23. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them, and he was an, of Arimathea a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. So he's counselor, he's good, he's, um, he's waiting for the kingdom, and the biggest one, he's, in Hebrew it would be the word zadik. Does anyone know what that means? Righteous. righteous. He was a righteous man. And this word in Hebrew, as well as in Greek, is not just, this is the same that's spoken of Yeshua's father, stepfather Joseph, and Elizabeth, and Zacharias. Same Greek word that's spoken to, to qualify. 
It's this term for what's righteous, for what's holy, what's pure. This is what kind of person he was. As well, he's waiting for the kingdom. He's a disciple. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the Sanhedrin. And it says that he did not agree with the council of the Sanhedrin, right? Yes. I don't know if you are planning to address this. Are we on Joseph, or is it something else? Well, it's about Joseph, but about what he was waiting for. Yes, what is he waiting for? The kingdom of God. Okay. So what do we understand by that? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I don't know. I don't know, because what was the kingdom of God in the first century? What did people see that the kingdom... In other words, in, in Hebrew, they saw the term mahut. And I'm probably not spelling that. Shemaim. What did it mean to be in the mahut shemaim? It meant that they took on the yoke of the commandments. So that's a basic understanding of basically what maybe that might term might mean there. I'm abbreviating commandments. The yoke of the commandments. So I don't know what Joseph knew about the kingdom of God. That's a great, a great question. Because um, this is the same terminology we see said about um, in Luke chapter 2, Simon. He's also waiting for the kingdom of God, right? Does everyone know which Simon? Simon the Cohen, the priest, in Luke chapter 2? He's also waiting for the kingdom of God. So I don't know. I don't know what his expectation is. We see there's a lot of people, and, and, and who else was looking at the kingdom of God and had a perspective? Yes, that's that's Simon, yes, or Simeon. Oh, it, well, she was there, but it, I don't remember what it said about her as far it as the... It was Simon, right? It was Simon, the, the Kohen, who was there, and they brought Yeshua to him on the uh, on the day when they dedicate the baby after one month, Pidyon Haben, where they would bring the baby to have it dedicated one month. Especially, it was the firstborn, the dedication of the firstborn, specifically. So... This is the same thing with, that we see he's waiting for. Who else was, was had a concept of the kingdom? Who else? Well, who, who's, who's mentioned in John? Who helps bury Yeshua? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Nicodemus also has some concept of the kingdom. Knows about the kingdom. Yeshua even challenged him. So it, it's not really clear. We know that he's a disciple. We know that he was a disciple secretly because he was afraid of what that might mean. It's, it's an interesting story. But this man is spoken of throughout the scriptures in a very, very positive way. Very, it's very high to call someone a Zadik in scripture. Very, very, very profound, very important term that he'd be known as Joseph of Arimathea, the righteous one. The righteous one. I don't know. I, I honestly don't have an answer for you what he knew about the kingdom or what his content was because there's not enough information given. But it's, it's interesting that he's he's kind of a secret disciple. He's a secret disciple because he's afraid. 
And so I don't know. That's a, it's a really good, good question what he believed about the kingdom. But we see, look at, it's interesting if we go into this passage, um, verse 50, I believe it's in um, verse 57 or 58 here. He goes and asks for the body of Yeshua. And it's interesting here, the Greek word, it's uh, verse 58. He approaches um, with reverence. This Greek word is actually used sometimes to, 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 to talk about worship, how you approach with worship. This is the same reverence he approaches Pilate with. He, he knows that Pilate's a man of authority and respect, and he's approaching Pilate that way to ask for the body. It's very interesting that it speaks of him that way. So I don't know. Now, Jewish burial was a little different than what we see today. Does anybody know how they buried someone in Jew Yeshua's time? Okay. That's part of it. That's part of, does anyone want to elaborate more? Correct. So what would happen is they would wrap the person. Sometimes, sometimes it's believed whether it's a tallit or whether it's some kind of linen. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a tallit or not, or if it's just a linen that it's mentioned here. The idea here is that they left them in the tomb for a year, one year, and then at the end of that year, you're right, Katrina. They would come. They would take all the bones and put them in a box. Does anyone know what the box was called? An ossuary. And they've actually found ossuaries in Israel. These, they would put all the bones in a box, and then they would put that box with the family. And so everyone had their set of boxes for the families. And so when it says he was buried with his fathers, he literally was buried with his fathers because... In a sense, they kept all the boxes together in one, in one tomb or one place. And they've actually found ossuaries in Israel. There's something that you can see and, and understand. This is exactly what they did. So part of the situation that's going on here is there's much, um, there's much haste or there's a great deal of hurry because of the timing of this all. They've got to bury them right away. Why is that, do you think? Passover's coming. They need to get things done. It's late. It's between 3 and 6. And so the women don't get to anoint him with the spices. And so you have two, probably what we see in the scripture, as according to John, two men maybe quickly wrapping Yeshua up and putting him in a nearby tomb. A new tomb. A borrowed tomb. It was. That's another point. Joseph is, is well off here that he has his own tomb that he can make his own tomb and have it in Jerusalem. That's a pretty significant thing to be able to do as a man of means, to own property and to be able to bury someone right there. And it's also suggested it's in the garden. Maybe that it's in the exact same garden of Gethsemane. John makes that same suggestion as well. So then we have this story that's not in any other of the passages. They have this story um, in the last part of Matthew where a guard is given over for the, the watching of the body. Right? 
We see a guard being set and watched. Okay, why is the guard being put in place? Make sure no one can steal the body. Now, that's not that. That's part of it. But what did they say? What did they tell Pilate? That's right. Now, that's, I thought that was really interesting because this is the second time that we have John 2.19 being mentioned in this chapter. In John 2.19, Yeshua says, I will destroy the temple of God. And what? Raise it up in three days. And at the, and at the time, the hearers thought what? What did the hearers think in that passage in John? They thought he was talking about the building, the temple. And they said, this temple has been being built for over this many years, and you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. But at some point, they understand that this is a three days, meaning his own body. They make this uh, point earlier in the text, in, in Matthew 27, uh, let's see, verses 40 and 41, I think it is. And then they make it again that they understand that after three days that the same thing is going to happen again. The same thing is going to happen. Matthew 27 and verse 40, that they understand that Yeshua had that concept that he was going to die and rise again. And they say, and what I think is really interesting here is that they say the last situation will be worse than the first. The last, in a sense, the last deception that was done is going to be worse than the first deception. And I thought that was interesting because they understand that this is something that, that Herod will establish. So they ask him, make the, make the place sure. It says sure in the King James, and that means to secure it or make it fast. And not only that, does he make it sure, he puts a marker on it. It says he seals the tomb. And that meant some way of marking it with the official seal of Pilate. That the official seal of Pilate is put on the tomb. And the guard is standing watch. And we'll get back to this, but this is kind of just the beginning. Now here's where it gets maybe a little difficult. And I'm, I'm going to start by first saying I'm not trying to offend anybody. Okay? I don't want to offend anybody or take anybody's faith away. I really start with saying that because I love everybody here, but I want to be very clear. This is what the text says. This isn't what Michael says. This is what the text says in the Greek. And if you don't believe me, just like Bereans, you should go and find out for yourself. Look these things up for yourself and find out if this is what it says. But we have this term that we see in Matthew 28, verse 1. And I'm hoping my water is blank. Okay. We have this term, the first day of the week. And in the Greek, for the word first, it's this word Maya, M-I-A. And for day of the week, for the whole section, we have this word, Sabaton. The word sabaton is also in the verse earlier. 
And it's the word they use to translate the word Sabbath. Now, I know that we've probably heard and been taught that Yeshua was raised on Sunday, but that's not what the text says here. It says on the, on the first of the Sabbath, on one of the Sabbaths. And I'm sorry if that upsets anybody, but that's what the Greek says, that just being faithful to what the Greek says. And it's not just something we see in Matthew. It is in also in Mark and in Luke and in John. The same words, Maya, Maya Sabbaton. So it's not, to, it's not to upset anybody, and it's not to bring any... any um, this is truth, but it's not something I love to go and say, I'm going to go beat up my friend now and straighten him out. Because a lot of times that's what's fun to do with truth, is go say, you know what, you're wrong. You've been wrong about that, and here's what it really says. And that's not my, my desire to do in any way, shape, or form, is to use the truth to beat anybody up. It's just simply to say what that means. Michael? Yes. Um, I was always taught that Sunday was the first day of the week. Well, that's how it chose to translate here, but the Greek does not say that in this passage. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that that's a common viewpoint, and I'm going to say one, two other things about this, because I want to bring in a couple other scriptures where this same type of thing is used. Same wording, same idea. And look at, for example, let's turn to Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. I think it is here in our notes. And I'm probably moving faster through my notes than I am with my fingers. It's Luke 13. Okay. I will take anyone who likes to read. Aaron, if Aaron's got it. And there was a woman who, for 18 years, had a sickness caused by a spirit. Just handed. Yeah. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So we have the same words here, except there's one exception. We have the word Maya again for one, and we have an article, a Greek article. I don't know how to pronounce that. But it, Ha, huh? okay, the. the, and then we have sabaton again. And here they translate it correctly. Here it's translated correctly. That's the only difference. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to Mark, because there's one other piece in Mark, and we'll come back to Luke also, so hold your finger in Luke. And let's go to the very end of Mark, Mark 16, 9. And Art, I will reach. When Yeshua rose early on Sunday, he appeared first to Miriam of Magdala, from whom he had expelled seven demons. Okay, so they translate the whole first day of the week in your version as Sunday. And here the Sabbaton is correct. The Sabbaton again for day of the week. But this time, for first, it's a different word. It's the Greek word protos. Protos. And this means first, but it talks about it as first, chief, in order. And part of what this is talking about, 
The first Sabbath, in other words, part of what this is talking about is it's talking about a feast day. Does anyone know when the first Sabbath is? Let's look at it. Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, because this is important. And later on we have even in Luke, Luke 6.1 says, on one of the Sabbaths, and for first we have the word, I'm not, I'm not spelling it right, deuteroprotos. I don't know if that's correct. That means second Sabbath. So why would Scripture talk about a first Sabbath, a second Sabbath, maybe a third Sabbath? Does anyone know why? Let's read Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, and I didn't have it written in my notes, but I know it's in the notes. 15 and 16. Count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering. So that's what this is first, second, third, fourth. All this is in connection with the wave offering, for the wave offering of first fruits. And that's what Mark is trying to bring out to us. Yeshua rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. And there's a reason why. Because he is our first fruits. He's the first fruits of those that rose from the dead. Just as 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very plain. The first fruits that we celebrate in Yom HaTechiyah, the day of the resurrection in Hebrew, we celebrate those within together. Because it's an offering that was made of the new wheat, the promised harvest that would one day come. And Yeshua is that same picture when he rises from the dead here. He's the same picture. Now I want to talk for a minute, just for a brief minute. And for those of you that have taken membership, you've probably heard this before. Okay? But our congregation, I want to make it very clear, our congregation presents things that there are two views that we, we strongly look at. Someone has a relationship with the Lord, and this is from Romans chapter 14. We look at it like this. Each person is at a different place on the path. So if someone decides to celebrate on Sunday, or on Monday, or Tuesday, whatever day they choose to celebrate, this is not something we're to judge them on. Because if we judge them, we're in the place of God. Now each person is to do two things, or to seek the Lord, and come to some kind of conviction on their own what they should do with this information. Secondly, we're not to judge anybody. There are brothers in the Lord. And if we start judging them, we're no longer brothers, but we've become a judge and we've put ourselves in God's place. And so even though I've shared this truth with you, I want people to be very clear that we don't look to go around beating up Sunday worshipers, trying to say they're worshiping the sun God, or trying to say anything else evil about them. Those are our brothers in the Lord. Those are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's the, that's the stance here at Yeshua Tzion we take. Everybody, how they eat, how they choose to what they worship on, it's between them and the Lord. And that's, and that's all I want to just say about that. So, moving on to verse 2. There's a great earthquake that happens in connection with the resurrection. Now, if you were here last week, this is what we talked about. Remember that there was a great earthquake, and what happened? 
Tombs opened up, and people came out of the tombs and started appearing to people in the city, right? Here's the context for which, this, which that happens. Scripture at times will show us a picture beforehand in the chronology in which it happens. And in this case, that's exactly what's going on. And so, at this point, when Yeshua rises from the dead, that's when the earthquake occurs. That's when the earthquake occurs. It's not at the same time as the crucifixion or in conjunction with when Yeshua dies. And that we pointed that out in verses last week in Matthew 27 in verses, um, 50, I think it was 52 to 54. We talked about that. And so part of the perspective that we're trying to see here is that this earthquake came again, and everybody that was at the tomb now was very, very scared. Very, very scared, because an angel showed up. And the angel shows up, and the guards actually shake, and they become, and they were, they became as if they were dead. And the angel has a, a basic message he's communicating here. He communicates it here to the women. He says, stop being afraid. That's a very common thing with all angel sightings. The very first thing the angel says, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm here. I know I look scary. In fact, it even says how the angel looks. He looks as lightning looks. And I remember, I remember, it used to be very scary. As a young child seeing lightning at night, I used to completely freak out. It's just something that was my own fear. And I even remember how the lightning had that weird purple tinge to it. And that used to really look scary. But that's kind of how the angels compare here. That he looks as lightning. And that his clothes were the brightness of snow. They were so bright. And he tells, he tells the women as they're coming to the grave, the person you seek, they are not here. The very, the very important thing. The reason they were coming. He is risen. That's a big message. He is risen. And then he tells them, come and see the place where he was. Then he goes to tell them, go quickly and tell his Talmudim. Go quickly and tell them. And he goes ahead of you into Galilee. And I think each of these messages had to be taken by faith. There was a huge battle for faith in this area when Yeshua rises from the dead because it was definitely completely unexpected or forgotten about, I think, by most of his followers. And I have to say something really clear here. The only ones that were ready to do the job and were ready, had shown up to hear this message were ladies. That should say something to us, guys. The ladies were the ones that were there, and we've talked about this before. Ladies tend to show up. Widows tend to be a big part of worship services because they get this idea that they're all in. They understand their calling. They understand their purpose, and they have a focus that's very, very unique in the sense that they're more sensitive at times to what God has to say. And we can really learn when our ladies want to tell us something. In fact, I truly miss not hearing my wife probably tell me things I probably need to hear. But that's just how life is. If we learn to follow the example and learn from the faithfulness of these women that were willing to come to the grave at the end of Shabbat, probably at night, because the Shabbat ends at night, they came 
and they were ready to do work that needed to be done. And I think that says a lot of the women of Scripture. They have a very strong and powerful example that we can learn from. So Yeshua begins to appear to his disciples. And he appears first to the women. And the first thing that I want to talk about is that when God tells us something in his word, whether he gives it to us directly from scripture, the way we know that's true is when some kind of powerful thing happens. And I want to suggest to you that power always confirms God's word. When God gives us his word, God will give us the power in order to confirm that word. And that's part of what's going on when Yeshua shows up. He's confirming to these ladies, this is what's happening. This is what I wanted to tell you. And it's a confirmation that they're supposed to go do what they're supposed to do, which is tell his disciples. Tell his disciples. Now, another part of the story comes into play here, too, that's very interesting, back to our friends, the guards. And it's kind of interesting, the stance that they take here, because they're told, you need to tell this lie. And I just want to ask you, does anybody see a problem with the lie off the bat? So basically, in a sense, they failed to do their job. That's a death sentence. <laughs> in Rome, that probably was a death sentence. If you were told, guard this with your life, you probably took that seriously. And, but they failed, they have failure in their job immediately. say this, there's another problem with the story, to admit they were asleep. What's the problem if they were asleep? How would they know who took the body? If you're asleep, there's all kinds of problems with this lie. So I don't know why on earth they even thought this would be a credible lie. And the commentaries don't have a lot to say but this is the story that's been stuck to. Sometimes good lies don't want to die when they need to. But this lie particularly needed to die. But at the time of Matthew's Gospel, when he writes these words, it's probably about 30 years, and it's still the story they're sticking to. Still the story they're sticking to. So it's kind of unfortunate. Now, I want to close on the Great Commission the part that we're going to talk about. And there's many of the appearances. There's 
probably another fog that we could go into. Um, when he appeared to the fish, when they were fishing at night, we see that he appears to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. We see that uh, there's the whole point when they all run to the tomb and look inside, Peter and John. And there's the time that he appears to Thomas. Great, great study. And I wanted to t- dive into those, but I don't think I would do it justice to even begin to look at each of those stories. But one thing we see that, that's important, this is at least the second appearance to the eleven. The second appearance. And they're, they've returned home. They're in Galilee. So I don't know, you know, he appeared to them earlier in Jerusalem. It's very clear in John 20. That's the case, John, starting in John 20, 19. And he appeared to ten of them, because Thomas wasn't there, and then he appears to the eleven. But this is a second appearing in Galilee. And he gives them the quote-unquote great commission. Once again, I don't want to offend anyone. The Great Commission is part of Scripture. It's an important part of Scripture, but there are some things we have to understand and kind of tease out about this a little bit. The first thing he talks about is that all power is given to him. Why is that important? If we're going to get commissioned to do something, what does that mean? We need to have authority. And remember, what did we say about Matthew? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's this constant battle. Who's got the authority? Is it the Pharisees? Is it the elders? Who's got the authority? And once again, that's why the Great Commission starts... I know people at times have gotten hurt by authority. I can understand that in, in people's hearts because I know some people struggle with authority. Maybe they had an authority figure that was unfair. Maybe they had someone who downright abused authority. Okay? But the way we try to present authority here, it's precious. God sees it as precious. We need to have the same idea. In that sense, here at Ishotzion, we just don't give authority to whoever walks in the door. And we've had people who leave because maybe they didn't get authority right away. But authority is very precious, and all authority starts with Yeshua, and it works its way down. Now, the second thing, we have this phrase, Go therefore... And teach. That's how sometimes it's said. Does anybody else have a different version? Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Okay, let's hold off on the baptism for just a minute. Because I definitely want to get to that. Because I think that's kind of a little bit not translated well as well. Make disciples. That's really the emphasis on this. You're all here tonight. At some point, you, you were going to go. At some point, you're going to come. Everybody's always coming and going. The emphasis in the scripture is more on the making disciples or on the teaching. It's important to establish that 
Because a lot of people get hung up on the go. God knows we're going to go. God knows that we'll go somewhere. We leave at times. That's part of God's plan. He knows that we're going to be moved in a direction where if you've come here for the first time, if you're going to leave at some point, you already know in the future, I'm going to leave or whatever. The going is not the emphasis. The emphasis here is more on the teaching. And the, the, the word here is the same idea, the same word for the making of disciples that we see in Deuteronomy 11.19. Let's have someone read that. Deuteronomy 11.19. I hope you all know it because we probably say it almost every week, just about, a form of this passage, Deuteronomy 11.19. You're here on Shabbat. Maurice. Oh, she left the room. Okay. Scott? Uh, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This word in Hebrew is the same idea. Lamad. Meaning to teach or disciple. The idea is discipling first started where? Children. Children, I know that the part here is talking about make disciples of every nation. But sometimes God wants us to learn to make the disciples that we already are in charge of. Our kids, our wife, our husband maybe. God wants us to learn to make the disciples that we already have in our midst too. That's just as important, if not more important, to learn to make disciples and the people that we already have in our lives. Instead of heading out to another country, learning another language, and I'm not invalidating that. I'm just saying that this is just, it's just as important for a mother who decides to start bringing her kids up in the ways of the Lord as it is for any missionary that goes to Africa. Okay, baptizing. Now I have a big problem with the word baptize. Does anybody know what where the word baptize comes from? Well, if you say if it's be, it'd be like me as a teacher if I said to you, if you all said to me, Michael, we define the word redundant, and I said, yeah, it means redundant. You wouldn't know what it means, right? This word for baptize, it comes from a Greek word. They didn't know how to establish what this was, so they said, let's just make the Greek word into a word. Because the Greek word here is baptismo. Baptismo. So if I said, what, do you, what does baptismo mean? Well, it means baptized. It's not going to really have much clarity, is it? The idea here is the idea of immersion. Immersion is part of the believer's life. And I'm not, that's really not what this verse is about. Because what is it? How are we to baptize? In the name. In the name of what? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what is that talking about? Does that mean when we baptize people, we have to say those words? Because a lot of people have taken this, and they've made it as a formula. I love formulas. Everything gets simple. You bake it in the cake, mix everything in the bowl, and wham, it comes out the way it's supposed to, right? Sometimes. Formula 
is sometimes where this passage gets emphasized, and it's not about the formula. The idea of in the name, whenever you see the word in the name, it's pointing to character. What someone's character is like. And it's giving us three different parts of God's character here. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Ruach HaKodesh, right? They each have a different purpose. And part of the reason why is God wants us to learn about their character. That's how we're to make disciples, that's how we're to baptize people. It's really to be about what their character looks like. How is the character of the Holy Spirit? Does he like grab you by the arm and say, we'll get you straightened out here. I'm going to twist your arm until you do do it. Right? No, the, the character of the Holy Spirit, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force anybody to do anything they don't want. The son, his character is to sacrifice himself. To give and give and give until he has no more to give. The father, always that authority, who's willing to love us when we're unlovable. That's the character that we're to baptize people in. It's not about the formula. It's about the characters. The characters that are involved. And part of the picture is, when we make these disciples, we're supposed to teach them to observe the things that Yeshua is commanding us. Now, I know that most people think the Torah has how many commands? We have 10, we have 613, right? Did you know that the New Testament has even more? Some people count close to a thousand commands. A thousand commands. It's a lot of commands, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Love one another as I have loved you. Admonish one another. In fact, there's a lot of them with one another. One of my favorite terms sometimes. Bear one another's burdens. Teach one another. Help one another. Pray for one another. All these things are commands. And in the New Testament, there's probably more commands than there are in the Torah. Another truth that God wants his disciples to know the things he's commanded. That's the most important thing we need to teach the disciples. It's the things that Yeshua has commanded. So that's basically it. That's the end of Matthew. If you have any questions... Oh, I did want to end by highlighting another passage of Matthew. Because Yeshua does have a heart to get the word out, to get the message out. And he quotes to us Luke, I'm sorry, not Luke, earlier in Matthew, he tells us what that's to look like. And so I have at the end here this passage I wanted to highlight in Matthew, because this should be our prayer when we look to outreach. Because inreach is just as important as outreach. But Matthew 9, 36, I think it's 36 to 38, Is there anyone that didn't read that would like to read? Katrina? Matthew 9, 36 to 38? When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send out workers into his harvest field. So that's part of God's plan for outreach. That's the basic, that's like the building block. You know, like, like DNA is the building block in our genes. This is like the building block for outreach. It all starts with prayer. Pray that workers, are you a worker? Maybe we're praying for you. I don't know. But God tells us, pray that the workers would come and they would labor in the harvest. Pray that they would come. And this is something that we've been doing for a while and we will keep doing because God wants to establish his people that want to work the harvest. And hopefully that's somebody that's here in this room tonight. I know even even my portion in outreach might just might be being loud. You know, sometimes I just take the shofar and blow it because it's loud. And that sometimes gets people wondering. I don't know. But outreach is part of God's heart and it begins with prayer. Prayer and more prayer. So I pray that this has been a good study. Karen, is Karen still here? Okay, she's out. Floyd? Karen, me? Yes, Karen, you. Would you like to focus us in prayer? Sometimes I know you don't want me to have you read, so I thought I'd ask you to close in prayer. All right. Lord, we come to you and we just praise and thank you for all your blessings. We thank you for your word and for allowing us to, teach, to be taught and to learn of you. I ask that you would be with us this week. Guide us and protect us. Give us wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discernment. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.